Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. to Continuous Play's Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. These reviews will be spoiler-filled, so if you haven't seen the movies, watch them before listening to our podcast. Continuous Play Podcast is not affiliated with Heyday Films, 1492 Pictures, Duncan Henderson Productions, or Warner Brothers Pictures. And any discussion of these films, the characters, music, or parties involved is done so for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Now, Anna and Jay, raise your wands, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Filmstrip's Harry Potter Retrospective Series. I'm Jay. I'm Anna. And we're here to talk about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, released in November 2010 on a budget of $250 million that should be noted that shared between Part 1 and Part 2. This one made $295 million stateside and 955 worldwide. Anna, this was two and a half hours long, and they decided to take the last book, split it into two pieces, and a question we'll have to answer is, was that worth it? Was it necessary? But uh, before we get into that, I guess we got to talk about The Deathly Hallows Part 1 as a film. Okay, we'll do that. So, well, what, I mean, just, you know, right out of the gate, um, <clears throat> I think it's worth noting before even we get to a plot summary or whatever, this is a really different this film has a totally different feel to it. Like almost from the moment it opens, you can tell this is going to be a much darker, much more serious film. And I think they've been trending that way for a while because the audience has grown up with Harry Potter and they're older now and they're starting to deal with you know more mature issues. But they really ratchet it up quick in this one, I think. Well, um, I think also the formula is is gone and you'll see that in our plot summary because we've every movie up till then you know except there's some variations like he's at the dursleys and then he's at hogwarts somehow he gets to hogwarts and then all this stuff happens at hogwarts and blah 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 blah. and this one is different this one's different it's a different set it's a different feel it's a different theme ever everything's different and it is breaking away from everything we've seen for the last six movies i think you're right i think it's a it's a very different thing why don't you go ahead and give us a plot summary and then we'll start working through the movie like we have okay um voldemort complains to his loyal followers that his wand and harry's are like brothers so he can never kill harry with that wand after dumbledore's death voldemort's return to power is imminent he not only infiltrates hogwarts but the ministry of magic as well instead of attending hogwarts for their seventh and final year harry ron and hermione set out to finish the mission that dumbledore started and embark on a journey to collect and destroy the rest of voldemort's horcruxes they do find one horcrux a locket 
but have a difficult time destroying it. Eventually, the sword of Godric Gryffindor appears to Harry in a lake, and Ron smashes the locket with it. As they gather more and more information, the symbol of the Deathly Hallows, which happens to be a children's story in the magical world, keeps appearing time and time again. The story tells of three brothers who procure magical gifts from death, the Elder Wand, the Resurrection Stone, and the Invisibility Cloak. Eventually, Voldemort's snatchers catch up to our three heroes and take them to the Malfoy residence where they are to await the Dark Lord. Unfortunately, Dobby sacrifices himself to save Harry Potter and the three escape along with Ollivander the Wandmaker, a goblin from the bank, Gringotts, Luna Lovegood, their classmate, and the knowledge that Voldemort has stolen the all-powerful Elder Wand from Dumbledore's tomb in hopes of finally killing Harry Potter. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a good summary of what goes on. We we definitely got to talk about we got to talk about that whole locket because I'm having flashbacks to another epic film series. Is that you know, is that Lord of the Rings? Yeah, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. But uh, uh, you know, I can't help but feel like Anna that I, this story just sort of truncates and just stops in the middle of when it's just starting to get good. Yes, it does. And um, like I've said before, the book is just like that. This is, I mean, everybody should, even if you've never read the book, you should know how thick this book is. It's thick. It's big. Her books just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is massive. And um, this is literally 75% of the book. Really? Yes. This movie is about 75% of the book. The hmm. book spends time, they are out in the woods for the majority, at least like the middle half of the book. They're out in the woods working on this one horcrux the whole time. And the the book portion of this was like Goblet of Fire, the movie. It was reversed where the book Goblet of Fire kept me interested and kept me interested and kept moving and moving and moving. And in the movie, I was like looking at the thing. Oh, God, when is this going to end? And this was the opposite with the book. I was like, okay, something's got to happen. Something's got to happen. Something's got to move the plot along. And nothing ever did until we got to this part. And the movie, I thought, moved a whole lot better than the book. And I was real, when they said they were going to do two parts, I will admit I was a little skeptical because this part of the book is so boring. The movie actually is a lot less boring than the book. I will say that, though. I was never bored with this, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I was never bored with this movie at all. But I think mainly because I was really trying to keep up with what in the heck was going on. I mean, having no relation to the source material at all, not knowing what this, you know, what they were after and what was going on. Everything was a dark turn around another dark corner for me. So it really kept me engaged. Like, there, you know, I, I remember watching this and sitting there go, having to go back and rewatch parts of scenes because I felt like I missed something along the way. You know, they, they jam a lot in this movie, but they keep it going along the way. I was I sort of started thinking about how 
the difference between movies, um, if you've seen the Dan Brown adaptations from uh, The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons, if you've seen what Ron Howard did with those, he made a conscious effort in the second one of those, Angels and Demons, to take a lot of the exposition and have the Tom Hanks character walk around and talk the whole time. And it's not that way in the book. There's a lot of stopping and talking, but it kept everything moving. And I felt like that was the same decision made here, was we're going to get a lot of information out, but we're going to keep things moving. And I, for one, was glad to see that. Yeah, and that might be the difference because they spend a lot of time in the book, in their tent, talking and going over this and fighting and bickering. Yes. And and they, they, they did a good job of keeping it moving. And I really was interested. And I will say, I've read the books and my husband hasn't. My husband's like you. He's just seen the movies. And he asked me a lot of questions, like, and especially in the last, last one, the next one, the part two. He asked a lot why they do that. Why they do that. And I'm like, you remember from the, oh, okay, why they do that. Yeah. They, they do that. So I got that a lot. If you're not kind of a fanboy, fan it's very easy to get lost, I would think. Oh, I totally agree. And I will say this now. This is this is a movie made for the fanboys of the series. Now, that said, there's a lot that they've cut out of it to make it streamlined and move. But th this there's almost too much movie homework here for somebody like me that sort of just casually watched this series uh, through the years and, and has really only picked it up as we've done this retrospective. I, I caught myself many times going, have we seen that before? Have we seen just like the last movie, you know, when I was going, Who, who's Tom Riddle, you know, and then it rem finally remembering, you know, what book that was from, what film that was from. So I felt like the same was going on here. Now I, let's talk a little bit about our core three, Harry, Ron and Hermione, these kids that have grown up at this point. I mean, they really have grown up in front of us and they all play so much older now than even they did. I think in the last movie, I was really surprised by the jump. Like, I almost felt like it was more than, you know, a year. Or I mean, what's the, supposed to be the time distance between part six and this? It's the same as it's the same as every book, and it's the same as every book. It goes through. It goes a school year. Okay. It starts like because his birthday's in July. It starts like in July around his birthday, and then in August they're getting ready to go back to school. So it always starts in July around his birthday, and then they go back to school in August, and then it always ends when he's leaving Hogwarts in the spring to go back home for the summer. Okay. So this is the same thing. Dumbledore, and I don't think they make they make it clearer in the books. That's one thing the books do. They make it a lot clearer. I don't think they necessarily make it clearer in the movies. Like it could very well be Christmas time for all, you know, all you know. But in my friends who've read Twilight, this is a weird concept. Who haven't read the Harry Potter but have read Twilight, and I, I'm thinking that if they're gonna go like like once her freshman year, her sophomore year, her junior, and they're like, no, 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 this is only these four books are only like a year and a half, two years tops. I'm like, really? And um, but that's how it goes. It goes a school year. That's how it sh you should look at it. Okay, that makes sense. But it does. I mean, did you get that feeling too, though, that more time had passed than just the distance and a the changing of a school year, the summer in between? Because I really felt like it had. No, I didn't. Oh, okay. But, but, I've, read the but I've read the book, and I knew that. Okay, well, maybe it's maybe it's just me, but I, I just felt like there was. There was so much going on that, I, I don't know, they just, maybe it's the material too. The characters are playing something that's much, much darker. And 
said before the plot summary, they're playing out of their element. We've had this pattern of the Dursleys, Hogwarts, Christmas time, and, and this. And they're, they're playing out of the little sequence it's always normally in. And all the action takes place at Hogwarts. This is the first time the action has taken place outside of Hogwarts. Right. So it's a different setting. It's a di- And also something I got at the very beginning of the movie is they kind of do this shot of like, I noticed it for Ron because he's a lot bigger than Harry maybe is why, but it's like this panning shot. He's out in the, I noticed it from Hermione. Let me back up a second. I noticed it with Hermione because remember she's taking the memories of her parents away. Right. Which is, which is really kind of sad. Yeah, and I, that scene was really good because it was real. It was really moving, and how they saw the her disappear from the pictures, and yeah. it's like to me, it's like you know that summer. Usually, it's between your junior and senior year where you come back like a totally different person. Like maybe if you're a guy, you've grown and you're tall, or you've bulked up and lifted weights, and if you're a girl, maybe you've grown up and kind of. Sl- lost maybe some baby fat or something and um you come back or you got your braces off or you got contacts or something to me that is that summer where you come back and you're a whole different person something happened and just totally changed you and i think that's what this is and they're making that conscious decision by hermione obliterating her parents memories of her that she is committed to this and then ron's like standing out in the field by the burrow and to me it's just like that's showing how they change so it makes sense that they would have kind of a physical change well they're the they're the only ones that know they're not going back to hogwarts right they've kind of made that pact that they're going to go and destroy the horcruxes and they're taking that upon themselves because they know there's nothing to go back to yeah because hogwarts is overrun you know and so they know that and so uh, but you know, again, they these three get trapped together in a lot of tight spaces, and they have to sort of deal with their feelings and all that. And part of that is brought about by one of the Horcruxes, which is the locket that they they get. And I mentioned earlier on that I was going to allude to the flashbacks I was having to Lord of the Rings. That you know, whoever was wearing this thing at the time, it started to affect you adversely. Now, did you get that off of this? Because I was having precious flashbacks. No, because I hate Lord of the Rings, and my husband drugged me to the second movie, and I didn't get it. I was totally lost, and I'm like, I don't really care. I didn't care about the first one. I don't care about this one, and I sure as heck don't care about the second one. So <laughs> I'm not a Lord of the Rings fan you're i'm more likely to get a star wars analogy and i'm not even a real big star wars fan it's not so much that i'm a lord of the rings fan i'm just telling you i remember that from those three very long very drawn out movies then part of it is that the ring that they're carrying across the woods to destroy has an adverse effect on you it makes you incredibly paranoid (laughs) and this particularly works for wrong you know, because he it, finally they lay it all out on the table and he's got to find out, you know, do these two have feelings for each other? Because as if it wasn't obvious enough, you know, that they don't, we now got to call it out. And I almost felt like that was unnecessary. Did I mean, did you think that was purposeful at all? No, not really. But it's because I've read, in addition to reading the books, I've read um, like the ultimate guide to Harry Potter where they dissect everything she writes. And um, 
I read that, but it was only for the first five books. I didn't get it for the other two. But um, they dissect what she writes, and it's quite obvious Harry and Hermione don't. They think of each other like brother and sister. They have no romantic feelings for each other whatsoever. And if you read that and read what they dissect, it it totally makes sense. But isn't that the trope, right? That that the the best friend who has the girl that you're also friends with, he's always paranoid that you're going to take her away or something. I mean that. Yeah, but I think it's playing on like when the the whatever it was came out of the when came out of the locket. Yeah. I think it's playing on Ron's insecurities. Yeah, yeah, obviously. And, um, I mean, even though he may not seem like it, those insecurities are in the back of his mind. Well, now that's half of Ron's character, though, is his insecurity, right? I mean, that's that's half of what makes him who he is. Yeah. He's so self-conscious about everything, you know? Yeah, he and is. And this is just exacerbated by the fact that this... And what all this is doing is bringing out these moments where... It's the evil trying to break up what knows can what it knows can destroy it, right? You always try to drive a wedge, you know, between the dream team that's coming after you. And it would make sense that part of Voldemort's soul would attempt to do that. Would try to break these three up because it knows how powerful they can be together. Yeah, that makes sense. I've never really thought of it that way, though. I don't know. I mean, again, I'm I don't know if that's in the book, if it's stated at all. It's just how I read it. And it makes no more sense. And then, of course, they're able to destroy it with the, you know, the whole sword in the lake thing. That was uh, really funny. Um, I was having Excalibur flashbacks the whole way. Uh, but, uh, but you know, that's okay because I think I've called out like everything that I think Harry Potter is borrowing from along the way, and that's fine. You know, good stories always borrow from other good stories. That's true. That's part of, but that's part on of the it. scene at the lake, it's just. I mean, I guess this is how I see it: that they have never given any inclination that. Harry and Hermione are romantically linked. They're always yeah. been just friends. It's always been platonic. So seeing them like making out naked was just so weird to me. Yeah, that was a. Ooh, I'm gonna tell you, there was a lot of sexually charged material in this film. I was sort of surprised they went there. But, yeah, but you gotta understand, and, and you work with kids these, or you know, you've worked with kids these this age this point they're 17 18 years old oh yeah yeah it, i mean they're totally american pie right now this is that's what happens to them. <laughs> yeah so this stuff's tame for a minute <laughs> yeah the I same mean, age as the kids were supposed to be in american pie yeah so. I mean, well you know it is it's the same kind of stuff i mean we talk about it brian and i often talk about it on the art of slang the buffy podcast I me mean, right now we're in the middle of their senior year of high school and i mean sex is a huge theme on that show and always has been and it really is that year in particular a lot of sexual tension and a lot of um, even sexual politics thrown in there. So, yeah, but it was weird to see them, like, you know, cuddling together. I'm with you. That was really kind of, ooh, I didn't expect that. I mean, it's another one of those things that just sort of made you jump in this movie. Yeah, I can see Harry and Jenny making out. I can see Ron and Hermione hanging out for something. I don't know if they've maybe done a good job of reinforcing what from the books that Harry and Hermione are just friends, nothing more, nothing less. And they really think of each other like a brother and sister more than romantic. So maybe the movies, looking back, the movies had done a good job of that. But it's just looking at them was just so weird. I mean, I could see it. I don't think it would be as weird if it was the same scene in the same amount of clothes with Harry and Jenny. I don't think it'd be as weird if it was Ron and Hermione. But just those two together, something's just 
Well, it's supposed it's supposed to seem off, and that's I think that's the point is to let us know this isn't real. This is just you know again the projection of Ron's insecurities, right? Mm-hmm. I mean that's the whole point of it. So it, if it if it feels uncomfortable, that's because it's working as a plot device. Going back to Ron's insecurities and taking Harry and taking Ron. Ron has had a love, you know, Ron grew up with a loving family. And, you know, his parent, he grew up with his parents who, from the movies and the books, just seemed like, you know, like a typical mother and father. He grew up with, he grew up with his siblings. You know, he had lots of siblings. Um, He, he, and then Harry grew up with these, you know, his parents died when he was young. These god-awful aunt and uncle who just absolutely hated him. And, I'm just, as you're saying this about the insecurities, I'm just like, what does Ron have to be insecure about? He has a family that loves him and will, you know, will be there for him no matter. Oh, oh, this is, this is simple. I'm glad you asked that. Ron is insecure because Ron is not special in any way at all. Okay. He's not special. Hermione is the smart one. Too smart almost, right? Yeah. Harry is this, you know, the one, the chosen one, you know, whatever, bring balance to the force kid, whatever you want to say. Yeah, he's the leader. Ron, he's- yeah. Ron is another one in a family of, you know, wizards and war- and, and and witches. And he's just doing what he's supposed to do. There's nothing special about him other than the fact that he's friends with the smartest person that he knows and the bravest person that he knows. Okay. So that's Ron's insecurities based on the fact that he doesn't have anything that makes him special. He's every man. In that way, Ron's supposed to be our eyes into this world. The the way the movies have gone, though, he's had, you know, the, I mean, he's getting a lot of character development now. There's about two movies in the middle where Ron got nothing. And so it, that doesn't always work as an avatar for us, but that's who he's supposed to be. Well, let's talk about this whole, uh, you know, quest that they're on and where it ultimately leads them. Malfoy Manor. You know, now, mm-hmm. what did you make of the Malfoys? Oh, I so wanted to call you out on the last podcast, but not. I think this is what I get from the Malfoys. I think, and I kind of alluded to this, I think, on the last podcast. I got that, you know what? They are like Draco. They talk about, you know, how he was going to kill Dumbledore. Right. He was going to kill Dumbledore. The Dark Lord commissioned him to kill Dumbledore. They talk a big game, but I think when it comes down to the nitty gritty, that they. They're just a bunch of cowards, and they're just a bunch – they're selfish. And I really think Baltimore sees that, too. Oh, I think you're dead on, too. What I had said last time was it was nice to have him do something besides just get in a few quips where Draco was actually a part of the whole story and stuff. Now, he wasn't terribly effective uh, in, under any means, and he's not so yeah. much in this either. But it was nice to get him more than just sort of being a pain in the neck. You know, but I'm with you. I, I think you're dead on too. Voldemort sees through these people. He knows how weak they are. Yeah. Or, or else, why would he surround himself with all these others? He's got backup plans. Yeah. Because even I, yeah, go ahead. I also think like you know how scary. I don't want to say scary, but in the second movies they were tough. They were intimidating. I think they're the type of people that that go to whatever side they think is going to win. And when they went to the Death Eater side, they just kind of gambled wrong. And, and now that he's, you know, now that he, now that he's, and they thought he'd never return. And now that he's back and he can see through them, that's what I got from it. Oh, totally. I mean, they're, you know, they're dispatched with and in, in, an easy way, mm-hmm. um, that much 
well, unlike a lot of other uh, things that they've had to, the three have had to go through in this, what do you think of Dobby's sacrifice to get everybody to or to allow everybody to escape? Well, I think that was appropriate, and you know, I just thought of this. Um, but remember, in the second movie, I think it is um, when Harry at the very end, when Harry inadvert, you know, frees Dobby, so to speak, by giving him clothing and makes right. it you look like the Malfoys did it because he's their house elf. And Harry says something like, promise never to save my life again. And now he saved Harry Potter. He saved Harry Potter's life by sacrificing himself. Yeah. And I, and I, I'll be honest with you. I thought, is he really dead? Is he really dead? And I was like, Oh wow. He's really dead. That was pretty dark. Yeah. That was pretty dark. And I was like, wow. uh, But you can look the computer. I think the computer animation got way better between the second movie and here it even made Dobby less annoying. Oh, by far. I mean, well, he's on the screen list too, but that, yeah, that's part of it. But yeah, I mean, he had a purpose here that, that was interesting and stuff. What do you think about the way it ended though? I mean, they kind of, we, we leave it here where everything's hanging now and what's to come. And you said it before, this is 75% of the last book. I'm curious if they're going to be able to stretch that much into the next movie. I was wondering what's coming, you know? So they are, I mean, and, one thing this did was this got me excited for I, I really having read the book really got excited for the last movie because right. I know what's going to happen. And this is the point, like I said in the book earlier, where stuff happens. You finally figure out what that stupid symbol is and you finally destroy a Horcrux and they start looking and like the like you know they spent fifty percent of the book on this once or more on this one stupid Horcrux, and then I mean it's like in seven they did two kind of in the sixth book because they had the diary and the ring, and then this one has the locket, and then so they've got four more to go. Right. Let me and let me count. Let me let me count real quick without giving too much away. Yes, they've got four. They have four to go in the next movie. So, so I, and another thing, like I said, I was skeptical about this movie and I did not know where they were going to end it. So I was like, there's no good place, especially in the middle to end it. Cause like I said, the middle, they're going from forest to forest to forest, trying to figure out how to destroy that Horcrux or find another one. And so I think they did a really, I, I was really impressed with how, how they did it and how it moved how the action kept going and how it moved and it wasn't them just sitting there in the tent talking all the time. Right, right. At least it went somewhere, right? I mean, that's the whole point. So, And we're at the part of the podcast where we give our popcorn rating for the film. So what's your popcorn rating for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1? I give it a large popcorn because it made me excited to see the second one and you have to see it. I mean, you can't not... I guess technically you could, but really you can't not see it. It's not a standalone. It's not even like the Order of the Phoenix or like we've said from day one, Prisoner of Azkaban could be a standalone movie. It's not like that. You've got to see it. It's part one of two. So you have to see it. I think it's very much a thank you card to the fans and stuff. I think they've done, I think you're going to, if you haven't read the books, you're going to be a little confused. So if you, didn't read the books you're probably going you probably might not agree with the large popcorn but if you've read the books i think it's good it gets you excited for the second movie and or the last movie and you're just i mean and i hope they don't disappoint 
Well, I'm with you. I think this is large popcorn territory all the way. It was fun. It kept moving. Again, I think if I, if you know all the book material and everything, this is the payoff for a lot of it for you, and you can walk your way through it. But if you're not, you just watch the films like me, you know, it keeps you engaged. And I think it was a real fun you know, ride. It was a very dark turn. And I'm not so sure that wasn't a good thing. I think it was time to grow up a little bit here with the series. And I think they've done exactly that. So I, I was excited about it too. I'm with you. It's large popcorn. And I mean, it's must see. You got to see it before you see part two. That would be pointless if, uh, if they didn't leave so much in here that you needed to be able to carry forward. Well, folks, we're almost at the end of our Harry Potter retrospective series. So until next time, for Anna, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning in to Filmstrip on Continuous Play. Thank you for joining us in this chapter of Continuous Play's Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Check out our website, www.continuousplaypodcast.com, each week for a new release in the series, and email feedback to us at mailbag at continuousplaypodcast.com. 